This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book. It's number seven of the series of studies in the book of Job. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together so those who are listening to this recording, if they care to join us, will you turn to the 26th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and read it as our lesson this evening. The 26th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Most of you who are listening to this study this evening will know that the series has been interfered with for a period by the fact that it was necessary to go to hospital and go through an operation and the very fact that we are resuming these studies I think it speaks for itself that we have been preserved by the mercy of God and through the intercession of his people and here we are back again and we trust with a measure of new life and new opportunities for service. The preceding studies I fear, makes somewhat hard going, partly by nature of the study of such a book of Job as taking the thing as a whole, and partly possibly the effects on the mind of the physical disability that began to manifest itself. However, we leave that and come to our present uh, study. Instead of going further into the study of the book as a whole, I want to concentrate our attention upon one or two outstanding features which are expressed in this ancient book and are as up-to-date as any question that we can meet. You'll find it in the 14th chapter of Job and the 14th verse. If a man die, shall he live again? And you see, that question goes deeper than is there a God or is salvation by grace or because nothing matters. You've got your answer in the Apostle's own inspired words. If Christ be not raised from the dead, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain, the sufferings you've endured endured are just without any meaning, And you might just as well join with the rest of people and say, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Of course, you may say, well, it would be a mercy and a blessing to have some fellowship with the living God even if it only lasted for your lifetime and then ended in dust. But blessed be God, he has a different view. He hasn't sent his beloved son. He hasn't sent him to endure what he did just to give us a brief glimpse of what glory might be and then to end forever in annihilation and that's finished. No. We realise that salvation was for a purpose. It was to deliver us from a bondage. Not merely the bondage of sin but the bondage of death. And it's well to remind ourselves that redemption and ransom in the scriptures not only deals with the forgiveness of sins but I will ransom thee from the power of the grave. It's included. So here's this man at last. Through the enormity of his sufferings, through the problems that he was facing, through the difficulties through which he was passing, sounding this death, he's got here at last. If a man die, shall he live again? 
And I can't believe there's any person with any approach to sanity who says, oh, it's wasting time to consider a question like that. It's deeper than any other question. It covers all our service and all our hopes with regard to this life and anything that might be to come. So let's give it a consideration, shall we? You see, the attitude of the Roman mind was, it's incredible. They said, you're mad, Paul. And the uh, materialistic Sadducee, the intelligent section, possibly, of the people of Israel, they set aside resurrection. The Corinthians, who were more touched with the philosophic side of Greece, they were full of questions and negations. And the Apostles Paul practically says, it's unthinkable that there should be no resurrection. Otherwise, Christ has died in vain. And that cannot be, for it throws back upon the very purpose and wisdom of God. Now, I want to go, first of all, back on our story to gather a little bit of the agony of mind of this man and then the way in which things gradually began to shape themselves and get at last to the triumph, which we get, you know, later on in the 19th chapter. I know. It's good sometimes to see that these things do not come always as a flash. Sometimes, some of the very friends who are listening to me, they can say, oh, there was a moment when I saw some aspect of truth, and I never went back from it. Well, that's blessed. And some of you have to say, you know, I was years before it dawned on me what it meant. But isn't it good that it dawns at last? So here's this man. Now, this is what he said in chapter 6. But Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together. Do give him credit for meaning something. He says, you're not, you're not acting fair. You're putting the weight all on one side of the scale. Put them together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Still he's blaming God, you see. He doesn't know yet what went on behind the scenes as recorded in chapters 1 and 2. Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass? Is that what's that got to do with it? Well, you must remember, in ancient times, much wisdom was expressed by parables. Like we say to somebody, oh, all is not golden letters. You see, same idea. He said, the wild ass doesn't bray when he's got enough to eat. But the ox doesn't low and make a noise when he's got his stall and his fodder. Then he says again, verse um, 8 and 9, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for. What is that, Joe? What is that? Even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Well, when a man of God, as Joe was, by God's own testimony, an upright man, picked out by God, and standing together with others as supreme examples of integrity, when that man got to that, oh, friends, he must have gone through a mill. We, we don't know the depths 
of that man's sorrow. We could only stand and wonder. Well now we turn to the next chapter, the seventh chapter. Is there not an appointed time to man upon the earth? Are not his days also like the days of an hireling? As a servant earnestly desireth a shadow, as an hireling looketh for the reward of his work, so am I made to possess months of vanity, and wearisome nights are appointed me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? And the night be gone, and I am full of tossings, to and fro, unto the dawning of the day. My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. There's some wonderful thoughts there, the man expressing himself. It's a possibility that in the words appointed time, if you have a margin in your Bible, you'll see there's an alternative rendering that it means a warfare. This word occurs in Daniel and elsewhere and it's possible that it must have a double meaning. That is to say, the time of man's existence on this earth is a time spent on a battlefield. You see, we are not at peace. There may be no actual war going on so far as the armies of the world are concerned, but never since the days of Adam, never since they left the Garden of Eden, has there been peace on earth. There were some who were discussing the question of the relevance of the Christian, uh, the Christmas teaching to present-day affairs. And among other things, they brought in the words of the angels, peace on earth, goodwill among men, or toward men. Well, it didn't say that when the angels came and said that they were going to take place the next minute. Christ himself made it very evident it wouldn't. And the whole, the whole of the history of the last 2,000 years shows that it hasn't been. But nevertheless, that's the purpose of God, that through that child that was born and that man that died, that death and that resurrection, there shall be peace on earth, but we haven't got it yet. Every, every recurring Christmas with all your Christmas cards, you haven't got it yet. And this man was living in a warfare. He was up against the leader. Satan had picked this man out. Here's the warfare between the two seeds that had been mentioned by God in that first great prophecy of Genesis 3. I will put enmity here, it is still. And here's the man saying, Oh, I wish the day were over. I wish we were finished. And then, it slides into the thought of the hired servant who earnestly desireth a shadow in a burning climate like Job was used to. That would be the feeling of getting out of the heat and the oppression of the day and getting to the shade. So he was looking forward, but at the moment, not in hope. <coughs> he was simply looking forward to an end, to finish it. <coughs> He said, <coughs> not only did he say my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and spent without hope, he said, all remember for thy life is wind. And James has said the same thing. He said, don't you know that your life is a vapour? He's beginning to see how transitory all the things of this life are. Then, when you come a little further down, verse 17, 
you'll see that there is something here that makes you stop for a minute. What is man? That thou shouldst magnify him. Somebody else said that, didn't he, later on. Another man said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honour. Job hadn't got there yet. But he started, friends. He started and it's going to lead him step. He says, what is man? Well, if you now go to the scriptures and read the story of the Bible and get the answer from God's word, what is man? You'll begin to realise that resurrection is almost implied. God made man in his image, in his likeness. Man was betrayed and sold under sin and became a bondman of sin and death. And then God intervened by redemption. And we are explicitly told that the purpose of God is that the redeemed of the Lord shall one day have a body like unto their Saviour. They shall be raised, satisfied with his likeness. They shall once more bear the image of his son. So resurrection is implied by the very words used at the creation of man. What is man? Job says, what is man that thou should magnify him? And I think he's rather meaning, why pick me out? Why, when you think of all the magnificence of heaven, and there's magnificence in the book of Job. He looks out into the starry heavens. He thinks of the sun and the moon. He thinks of the violence of tempest. Oh, there's wonderful things with regard to what we call nature in this book. He says, why bypass all that and focus all attention upon me? And of course he meant to set me up as a mark, as he put it. Make me a butt, as he put it and allow me to be suffering in this dreadful way. He admits, he says in verse 20, I have sinned. For what should I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? Well, now let's get a bit nearer to our subject. In chapter 10, verses 3, he gets another question cropping up into his mind, which is of very great importance. Chapter 10, verse 3. Is it good unto thee that thou shouldest press, that thou should despise the work of thine hands? Job has said something. He has said, I'm the work of his hands. It starts in thinking. Is it possible that God could despise the work of his hands? Yet look at me, he says. Sitting on a dunghill, scraping myself with a piece of pottery, a loathsome object to everybody and myself. What am I in his sight? I'm the work of his hands and look at me. Look a bit further down, verse 8. Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Yet, thou dost destroy me. 
He says, you know, I, I can't make this square. All lights come in, friends. This man's starting to think. He says, is it possible to believe that God is righteous, that he's wise, that he's all-powerful, that he's fashioned man, and this is all it's going to amount to? Does he despise the work of his hands? Has he no concern? Oh, Job, Job, in another chapter you're going to come right out into the light and say, oh, I have made a mistake. I have at last learned that he's deeply concerned. But at the moment, that's the thing that troubles him. To think that God should allow all this to happen and apparently be unmoved. So shall we now approach closer still and come to the 14th chapter? It starts, you may say, rather dolefully still. Well, it's a doleful subject. And the opening words remind you of the funeral service. Well, Job is practically at the end of his life, unless God intervenes, and his funeral is not far off, unless grace is given. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. There it is. That's the character of the man's life as he sees it. We'll come a little bit further down. It comes back to this question of being a hireling and reaching the end of his turn. Verse 6. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. That's all he has in mind at the moment. Now we don't know why he should suddenly start speaking about a tree. We don't know. But we do know in the parables of our Saviour he apparently, standing where he was, could point to a tree or could point to a flower or could point to something that was in the vicinity. And there's every possibility that Job had noticed many times. He gives evidence that he's a fairly wide acquaintance with what we call nature. If you want something to do at a spare time, go through the book of Job and make a note of all the so-called scientific anticipations that are found in that one book. By the time you've done, you'll be surprised at the sweep of the knowledge of the men of those days with things to do with meteorology and all the other ologies you can think of. So this man is not talking without knowledge. He says, there is hope of a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again. Now, has he any right to suddenly turn away from what we might call spiritual contemplation and talk about vegetable world? You know, there is a great danger in trying to base teaching upon analogy, only because your analogies may be false or deficient. But here we've got scripture for our guidance. Let me for a moment leave Job and remind you of the Apostle Paul's use of the vegetable world to deal with a very problem that we are now facing. Writing to the Corinthians concerning the question of resurrection, he said, some of you will be saying, how are the dead raised up? And with what body shall they come? Well, that's a stock question. If somebody to button on you tomorrow and ask you that, you couldn't answer them. 
Not a straightforward answer, but you simply don't know. And here's the puzzle with Job. How are the dead raised up? If there be a resurrection. And the apostle said, first of all, to those who put that question, thou fool. Now that doesn't give me warrant to call everybody a fool that disagrees with me. I realise that. But immediately we read those words, we're conscious. That that means to say, here is a question that you cannot get a direct answer. If you could understand how God could raise anybody from the dead, you'd practically be God himself. This man Job has been dead and buried and turned to dust, as he said himself, for about 4,000 years. Now you imagine somebody standing out in Arabia, where that man died and was buried, and then put in the question to somebody else, how can that man be raised from the dead? Well, you've got no answer. But here is the analogy. Paul doesn't go into that side. He says, look, look. Let me take you to something simpler. He says, you see a seed. You drop it in the earth. And then, in the process of time, it grows, the leaf, the flower, the full seed. How does that come about? Well, you can give him all sorts of botanical explanations, but you, you, you haven't said how. You're only there observing the work of God as creator. You take a plant that might be growing in the field, the petals fall, the head drops, a few little black specks fall into the earth, the little plant withers, the winter comes, and it's gone. And then comes spring. And one day, a little shoot comes through the soil. And it grows. And the self-same flower comes again. And the self-same seeds are at the top. Well, he said, God giveth it a body as it pleases him. And to every seed, its own body. So is the resurrection. And he leaves it there. So this man said, There's hope of a tree. I've often passed a tree. So have you. In your walk sometimes. It's been cut down. It's just a black ring in the grass. And then from the side, there's a little shoot beginning to come. Starting all over again. There's hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again. Let's go on again a bit further. And the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth and the stock thereof die in the ground. He even uses the word die. And you know in the Gospels, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. Strange thing to say that the seed dies and yet it's going to live. Well, he says it's been going on all the time around you. This miracle of a life out of apparent death. Oh, Job, you're started. You've got the right end of it. For Romans chapter 1 says that the idolatrous Gentiles were without excuse for the very works of God's hand were sufficient to reveal his eternal power and deity. It wouldn't teach them everything, but it would teach them something. 
So let's pursue. Yet though the scent of water, through the scent of water, it will bud <coughs> and bring forth boughs like a plant. Ah, then he stops again. But man dies and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? <coughs> he says, he's cut down like a flower. He's cut down like a flower. Job, you said it just now. In verse 2, he cometh forth like a flower and he's cut down. You said it again. In verse 7, there is hope of a tree if it be cut down. Look, you first of all said your life is a flower that's cut down, that's hopeless. And then you've said a tree which is cut down is not hopeless, it sprouts again. You'll get tangled up, Joe, but I think you'll come out presently. See, he's beginning. And then he begins to go back. Oh no, he said, I, I hardly feel that that's, that can be true. As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and dryeth up, so man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. Quite apart from our study, I was intrigued to notice in the Septuagint version, when it says, till the heavens be no more, it reads literally, till the heavens be unstitched. Unstitched. For the present heavens are likened throughout Scripture as a curtain and a tent to dwell in. And a day is coming at the dissolution of this present system, it will be packed up and put away like a tent. And Job says it will be unstitched. Oh, he's right. Although it's a very familiar way of speaking. Then he says, they shall not awake, nor be erased out of their sleep. And you know, by accident, sometimes we speak the truth. <coughs> awake. Raised out of sleep. Why, that's what we read in the New Testament. Our friend Lazarus sleeping. I go to awake him out of sleep. Paul writing to the Corinthians in the passage you've already quoted. He speaks about Christ being the first fruits of them that slept. Those that sleep in Jesus is a term of scripture. Sleep. But he says, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. And yet the very fact that he's used the words perhaps have made him stop and think. Well, that's what happens every day and every night, isn't it? Sleep. Oblivion for a time. Then awaking and starting a new day. So now he's started his thoughts. There's this tree, there's this sprouting, <coughs> there's this use of the words waking and sleeping. Now if you go back again for a moment, <coughs> it says, um, I just want to make sure of this expression, the word sprout again. There is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again. Now you wouldn't know, by looking at the authorised version, that he's going to use that word again presently. Let's come to it in verse 14. 
If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Now that word change is the word sprout. I don't want to appear to be treating this lightly. But Job said practically, I've got it. I'm going to sprout again. And it meant something to him. He said, I see it. Just as God watches over that tree that's cut down apparently, it sprouts again. I'll wait all my appointed time, however long it may be. And as surely as that tree sprouts again, so would I. Now we won't alter the, we'll say till my change comes. So you'll put it in harmony with 1 Corinthians 15. We shall not all sleep, but we must all be changed, says 1 Corinthians 15. So whichever you like, you can take. The figure of sprouting is the symbol of life from the dead. Now we come a, a, a bit nearer. <clears throat> I'll go back to the verse 13. All that thou wouldst hide me in the grave. Now this man up to now has been wishing that God would terminate his life, destroy him. Now he changes. Hide me. Hide me. That thou wouldst keep me in secret. Oh, that's another question, that's another point of view. That's not merely hiding, uh, not merely destroying. Hiding. Keep me in secret. Of course he hadn't got so far as we have by the mercy of God in the New Testament. But you can say those words with a depth of meaning and a richness, but Job has started them. When I read those blessed words in Colossians chapter 3, your life is hid with Christ in God. Well, Job hadn't got there, but he was getting there. It's one thing to be dead and buried and that's the end of it. Return to dust and that's the finish. Alas, that's what some people still believe. But he said, no. I begin to realise that there is a purpose of grace so far as God and man is concerned. I now am quite willing. Hide me. Keep me in secret. But you don't hide and keep in secret something which is gone and finished and no more value. Doesn't mean to say that Job will know anything about it. Doesn't teach that he was immortal or floating about in some world of spirits. He didn't know. Always said, I'm quite content. Hide me and keep me secret until thy wrath be past that thou wouldst appoint me a set time and remember me. You see, the man's got something now that's personal. Remember me. He's looking down the ages. I don't know how far Job's uh, view took him. But so far as we're concerned, 4,000 years ago, this man said, when I die, I die in this hope that one day you'll remember me. Well, a man who can say that with any meaning has now got beyond all these questions and quibbles. Will you come to think once again that this book wasn't written by somebody who had no idea of the magnificence of creation? As I've said earlier, it teems with reference to the wonder 
of the works of God's hands. All the various things that go up to make up what we call our modern science is there embedded in germ much that is said in the book of Job. He speaks about the sweet inference of the Pleiades, that little group of stars you see hanging in the sky like a pendant. You can see them better when you don't just look straight at them. Oh, they're, they're, they're so far away that the astronomer tells you in light years how far they are. What is it? 180,000 miles a second light travels. And that's been coming like that for years. Whether Job knew 184,000 miles a second or not, it doesn't matter. He knew that those stars were known to God, works of his hands under his control. Now you think of all that goes on in creation. Think that it's been said that it is the, it is the uh, tendency of every particle of matter to fly apart. And that's what man's been doing, just discovering some. Well, Think of the attention of God to look after the creation he's made to keep it from flying apart. You'd think that would take all the time that God has, wouldn't you? And this man dares to say that thousands of years after I'm dead and buried and gone, remember me. Remember me. Well, this is personal now. This is a blessed hope that this man's reached. Because you couldn't talk about remembering dust that's blowing about in the desert it was something more than that. Something more precious. It was hidden. It was secret. It was remembered. And then he raises the question now only to answer it. If a man die, shall he live again? All my appointed time will I wait till my change come. He's willing now. And then he adds these words. Thou shalt call. Well, we won't say that God couldn't call 4,000 years after Job died. But he says, and I will answer. Well, if that doesn't mean personal resurrection, what does it mean? And you know how careful he is in the 19th chapter to say, who I myself shall see and not another. And we've got the words all waiting for us in John the 5th chapter. Verily, verily, I say unto you that those which are in their graves shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. So Christ has said that some were dead and buried and beyond the power of any human voice to touch them were here. Now you'll start saying to me, how? Well, don't ask me, friend. It's good that I don't know. But he does. Here we're in the presence of the mightiest power that Scripture knows. When it speaks about creation, it speaks about the power of God. When it speaks about the resurrection, it's the exceeding greatness of his power. Resurrection. So we bow in the presence of this power. And we bless God, it's on our side. It's to restore us and bring us back. And not only bring us back, but to give us more than we lost in our first Adam, in the first Adam. Well, now we get to the very point of the whole story. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thy hands. You see the point? 
in chapter 10, he said, Wilt thou destroy? Wilt thou despise? It's only by accident that you can remember it. They all begin with D-E. Wilt thou despise the work of thine hands? Wilt thou destroy the work of thy hands? No, thou wilt have a desire to the work of thy hands. Blessed be God, he's got round the other side of the story. Now it isn't quite finished. This word desire is a word that needs to be just explained a little bit. The word means to turn pale. Let me take you to Job 3.15. Job 3.15 Or with princes that had gold who filled their houses with silver. You know the word for silver is argent. Gives us the word argentine. And the word means something white. The Hebrew word for silver is something that's pale. That's obvious, isn't it? It's a pale-coloured metal. Well, now, what the, the word that Job uses here is that God has such concern about Job's misery that instead of sitting there being quite indifferent as he thought and making a mock of him, as he had almost said, always oh, said, I begin to realise that God's desire is so intense that I can use this human figure, that God is turning pale with his anxiety, that the trouble of Job shall be over and he shall be restored. Oh, Job said that's put new life into me to come to that thought. The thought that he despised or he didn't care has been breaking me. But the thought that he knows and that he loves and that he cares. I can't explain it. I can't explain why I'm in this misery. But always oh, said it's lightened the burden. Doesn't it to you? When you go through your trouble, do you sit there and say, God's forgotten me? Oh, that's a dreadful thing. But if in the midst of your trouble you can say, I don't know why it should come to me, but I don't blame him, and I have a consciousness he's suffering together with me over it, oh, it helps you through. That's where Job had got. That's where we've got our trust this evening. We no longer say, he despises or he will destroy the work of his hands. He says, no, I haven't solved all the problem yet, but I do know this. He has a desire unto the work of his hands. And using that intensely human figure, he turns pale. My heart had fainted, as the word puts in the Psalms. God is represented as almost looking faint to think that he's got to hold back a bit longer before he puts out his hand and rescues Job. So if I've accomplished anything this evening, it's this, that we've come along the troublous path of this man up to this point, that has at last been led to see that he cannot and must not blame God for these things, for he has a purpose, but he's a God of love through it all. And so he says, Thou wilt call, I will answer, Thou wilt remember and thou wilt have a desire to the work of thy head. Shall we not be thankful then that this book has been written and praise him to think that it's been embedded as it has in such human experience.